Revelation 1 verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he lay his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then we'll move on to chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And lastly, just chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, just over the page. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. Amen.
An image or a metaphor is a very powerful thing. It can capture your imagination and can actually transform your imagination. Images can actually help us interpret the world around us. Let me uh, give you an example of a poetic image that we get in uh, William Blake's poem, The Tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye had framed thy fearful symmetry? Uh, what William Blake is doing in that poem is trying to capture the essence of what a tiger is, right? the awesomeness, the fearsomeness of a tiger. And he's doing much more than just saying, you know, a tiger is a large cat with black and orange stripes. Right? There's a lot more going on there. <clears throat> and that image has the power to unfold or reveal the essence of a tiger. Images can do that. And an image can purge or refurbish your imagination as well. When we uh, try to, when we uh, imagine the world from a different set of images, through a different set of images, uh, when we counter-image the world, it actually changes the way that we live. Because the lens through which we view the world, the images around which we orient our understanding and our experience of life and our understanding of the world, um, deeply shape how we live. And when you counter-imagine the world, and you counter-image the world, you live differently. The question then becomes, are you seeing correctly? Are you seeing with the correct set of images in your head the world? Because there are competing images that vie for your attention, that vie for your allegiance. What's the correct way of seeing the world? Is a tiger merely you know, a cat with black and white stripes? Or is there something more that is deeper that's going on in the essence of tigerness, which William Blake has a sense of that we, that we need his help with? In the first century, um, at the time that this, re- this letter was written, um, the book of Revelation, and particularly the letter to the church in Pergamum, which we're focusing on this morning, in the first century, um, the world was just absolutely flooded with iconography, with images, You'd walk down the streets in the marketplace in Pergamum and you'd see statues to various Roman deities, Roman gods and goddesses, statues to Caesars, uh, reliefs in marble and in stone, depicting all, all colluding in one great message that Rome is the most powerful force on earth, that Rome rules, and that Caesar is God. And these images were bombarding you constantly and constantly framing the way that people understood the world and acted in response to that world. And we don't have uh, that situation. Uh, you know, there's not really any um, uh, temples going to be erected to the worship of David Cameron anytime soon in Edinburgh. But we have equivalents in our society, in our culture, which um, we'll explore maybe a little bit in a moment. But what if the reality that you've been given by your culture, the sets of images by which, you've, which have been suggested to you around which to orient your understanding of the world and how to act and live in it, is fundamentally wrong. What if reality is actually different than what you've been led to believe? The book of Revelation is all about this problem. The book of Revelation is all about seeing correctly. It's all about seeing accurately. And the book of Revelation, as the title suggests, is all about revealing or pulling back the curtain so we see what's really going on behind the scenes. It's about unpacking the essence of tigerness in the world, in our experience of the world. That's why um, Revelation has these, um, in, in these, in these letters to the churches, you get, you, you get John saying, you think that you are this, this, and this, but actually you're this, this, and this. 
Or you think that this is the situation, but actually it's this. You get that, you get that kind of dynamic in some of these letters. Because what John is doing is he's helping his readers see you've been given this set of understandings, but actually this is the correct way of thinking about it. And what John recognized is that in the, the death of this man Antipas, who is mentioned in the passage that Johnny read for us a little moment ago, um, well, you can look with me at verse uh, 13, chapter 2 and verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Here's this man, Antipas, who was killed, who was martyred, because he was expressing his allegiance to Jesus in some respect. John sees in the martyrdom of this man, Antipas, a harbinger of something far more difficult that's going to come. This is just the beginning. This is just a precursor. And what he's doing in these letters, and particularly in this one, is to say, okay, Antipas has been killed. That's sort of the ground-level explanation. That's a ground-level description of something that happened. Yeah, a tiger is a large cat with black and orange stripes. But let me unveil for you what's really going on behind the scenes. Behind the scenes of Antipas' martyrdom is a cosmic battle that you are part of, that you're embroiled in, that you're caught up in. A battle between a dragon and a lamb. A battle between two thrones. And the experience that you have in your city there is just a small manifestation of something far larger that's going on. There are two particular realities or images that John wants us to understand in this letter to the church in Pergamum that we want to focus on, I want to focus on with you here this morning. Two images which interpret our reality, which can refurbish your imagination, can transform your imagination, and consequently change the way that we live. And both of these images we're going to see uh, have two effects. They comfort you and they warn you. So let's look at these two images together. The first image that Jesus wants the church in Pergamum to have fixed in their mind is in verse 13. We just read it. I know where you dwell, Jesus says to this church, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Did you catch the image referred to twice there? You live in a place where Satan dwells, where Satan has his throne. The first image is a throne of Satan. So that's really shocking language for us. We don't really use that name very often. Um, It's just really weird language. Um, But Jesus is interpreting for the church in Pergamum the place where they are. He's putting his finger on the reason why they're experiencing opposition, why things are difficult. You see, um, and and there's various possibilities of what the particular manifestation of Satan's throne might have been in the first century. But probably what John has in mind here is that in Pergamum in the first century, there was a, a rampant practice of the worship of Caesar. Caesar was worshiped as God. This had started with Augustus about a, hundred, about a century beforehand. But Pergamum in particular was sort of the, uh, the main center, religious center in Asia Minor. And it was the first city that had had a temple erected to the worship of a Caesar. And you can go to the ruins of Pergamum today and still see there's a, ruins, there's a ruined temple that was built and erected to the worship of Trajan, who was an emperor who followed uh, after Domitian, who was the emperor during the time that John is writing this letter. It was very common practice. You'd go into, in Pergamum, you'd go into the temple that was erected to the worship of Caesar. You'd throw a pinch of incense on the altar, and you'd say, Kaiser Curias, which means Caesar is Lord. And it was rampant in this city. 
And um, there was a large, uh, also there's a large hill, a big Acropolis that was overlooking the city of Pergamum. And John might have thought of that hill. It looks a bit like a, a large seat or a large throne, not much bigger than Arthur's seat, actually. You can imagine the city in the shadow of Arthur's seat. And maybe he picks on that image of a large seat, a large throne, and he puts that together with the re- religious reality in Pergamum. And he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. If Jesus were to write a church to Chalmers today, maybe he'd say something like, I know where you are, where Satan has his seat would be the Edinburgh equivalent. Now, we don't have, as I mentioned, you know, temples being erected to political figures. We don't have that particular issue, but we have equivalents. Every empire, every culture has a prevailing ideology that dominates the landscape, a set of images that force themselves on you and demand your allegiance Our culture is no different than that. Perhaps it's a little more subtle and therefore a little more dangerous. Perhaps in the West, and particularly in a a flourishing, thriving economic city like Edinburgh, um, one of the prevailing images that's thrust on us constantly is the power of the pound, right? The markets, which we almost personify in a sense of being like a, a, it's almost a personalized entity. You know, we talk about the markets as, you know, being optimistic, or the markets are a bit apprehensive, or they're up or they're down, almost as if it's a person, a thing. And the markets are, in, in our sort of market-based economy, in the, in, the, in the world in which we live, they are omnipresent. The market is everywhere. It's got its tendrils and its tentacles in every aspect of our lives. And um, they are omnipotent. You know, there's nothing that can't be solved, um, that, that, nothing that cannot be solved with a, um, um, economic um, trade. Um, there's, a, there's a deep conviction in the heart of people in the West still that we can solve all the world's problems through money, through flooding the market with, with preferences, with options, with commodities, with things. And so the 2008 economic crisis is regarded by you know, some economics, uh, economists, economists? What's the word? Economists. Um, <laughs> those guys um, was regarded by some of those almost like as a crisis of faith. It's interesting to hear the language. It's almost like it's a functional religion in the West, that money solves the world's problems, that stuff can solve the world's problems. So the image of the pound, it's no, it's no coincidence that, that was one of the biggest points of contention in the, in the recent referendum, right? What's going to happen to the pound? Or whether or not we stay in the EU. It's all about money and economic trade. It dominates every aspect of our lives. Or perhaps there's the, the image of, of the diploma, which is thrust on us as being the thing that if I just had that, that would give me life, that would solve my problems, that would bring me or protect me from um, you know, what, I, what it is that I fear. If I could just have a string of you know, diplomas hanging on my wall, a string of letters after my name, if I could point to a number of competencies, then I would achieve a certain status. People would respect me. I'd get this or that or that other thing that I really, really deeply want. The image of the diploma is a very powerful one, particularly in an academic city like Edinburgh. Maybe it's the image of the lab coat. There's a strong conviction in the West that science and technology can solve all the world's problems. And it's very interesting to me that, that the, doctor's sur- the, the, the GP surgery is displacing the pastor's study as the place where people tend to go to to get their problems solved. Right? Instead of dealing with the issues of sin and brokenness, we're now going for pills and prescriptions. 
Because science and technology has the answer to our problems. And maybe in the future, you know, neuroscientists will displace counselors and psychologists because you'll just have to run a few electrodes through your brain in a certain way, and that'll fix the, the issues you're dealing with. Strong conviction. Or perhaps it's the image of the sex icon in our over-sexualized culture that says to you what you really are after is a certain kind of experience. And if you just had this experience or this relationship, then you'd have life, then you'd find yourself, then you'd be fulfilled, then you'd be full. These are powerful images around which we orient our lives in the West. And I don't want to say that you know, all of these things are intrinsically satanic. There's good aspects to all of these things, okay? So don't hear me wrong. However, any image, any ideology, if it completely dominates your landscape and to the point that it displaces Christ, if it's at the center of everything for you and is the primary image around which you orient your life, that, John wants to tell you, that has a satanic throne behind it. What Jesus is doing in this letter is he's peeling back the curtain and saying, this is what's really going on here. You live in a place where Satan has his throne. Now, there's a great comfort in that. There's a great comfort in having someone peel back the curtain. You know what's actually going on. Oh, that's why I'm feeling a bit of tension about this. That's why I feel it difficult to be a Christian in this particular culture. It's because there's a satanic throne behind all of this. It's really comforting to know the source of the opposition or the difficulty that you face. And evil is most likely to have its way with you when you're oblivious to it. Satan gets his best work done when he can do it under the cover of darkness, when you're numb to him, when you're deaf and blind to him. He hates it when someone shines the light on what he's up to. He hates it when Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. He would much rather we be muddled about it. We're just living in the world, which is neutral territory. It's not neutral territory. We live in enemy-occupied territory. We're involved in a cosmic battle between the dragon and the lamb. And Jesus peels back the curtain on that. And there's also a comfort to know that Jesus knows where you live. Jesus says to you, I know where you dwell there in Edinburgh. I know the challenges that you face. I know how difficult it is to be a Christian where you are, to be a minority, to be looked down on. I see your acts of fidelity. I see your faithfulness, even in the small ways. I know the pressure that you feel to participate in a corrupt, corrupt economic or political system. I know the pressure you feel to compromise at work or in your family relationships in order to gain certain things or to protect yourself from certain things. I know how bombarded you are, Jesus says, with temptation to abandon purity. It's just too difficult. It's not worth the fight. I know where you live. But you've held fast to my name, and I commend you for that. So there's a comfort in knowing that Jesus knows. There's a comfort in knowing the source of the opposition and the tension that we feel. But there's also a warning in this image. Isn't there? Doesn't it ramp up the stakes that much higher? Now, this is far more serious, perhaps, than any of us really realized and recognized. This is not neutral ground. This is where Satan has his throne. But thank God that that is not the only image that Christ <laughs> uh, wants to put his finger on for us here. 
there's a second image, and it's actually the first image that Jesus gives to this church because it's the most prominent one, the most important one he wants them to take away. But I give it to you second because it's the one that we need to hear after hearing that we're in the place where Satan has his throne. It's in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. The second image that transforms and purges and refurbishes your imagination is Christ with a drawn sword. The image of a sword here is the sword that comes from Jesus' mouth. It represents the power of his word, the authority of his word. Jesus is the one who, when he speaks, the dead are raised and evil is consigned to darkness. He is the one who has authority to judge. He is the one who has power of life and death in his hand. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Of course, we're supposed to as Christians. Do you really believe that? That it's Jesus, not the pound, not the lab coat, not the sex icon. It's Jesus who has the ability to give you life. It's Jesus who has authority over life and death. You see, it's this sword that comes from Jesus' mouth, which will, in chapter 19 of Revelation, destroy the dragon. And although this beleaguered group of Christians in Pergamum live in the shadow of Satan's throne, as Johnny read for us earlier, there's another throne, which we'll see in chapter 4 and 5. It's a bigger throne. It's a deeper throne. And it's the throne that's at the center of the universe. And there's someone sitting on it. And it turns out the one who's sitting on this throne is the one who holds the sword. No matter how difficult it may be, no matter how much pressure you may feel, Jesus is the one who holds the sword. There's a great comfort in that image, is there not? If we really believe it. But there's also a profound warning in this image of Jesus with a drawn sword. Listen to the warning. Verse 14. I have a few things against you, Jesus says. You have some there in your church who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We're not exactly sure what is, what is being referred to by the teaching of Balaam or by the Nicolaitans here, but it's essentially the spirit of compromise. There were people in this church in Pergamum who under pressure in that difficult context where they were, were tempted, sorely tempted to compromise their faith in some respect. They were tempted to syncretism, to take a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the cultural ideology, a little bit of this image, but a little bit of this. I believe in, you know, believe in Jesus somewhat, but actually functionally I'm, I'm living in these other kinds of ways. The image of the teaching of Balaam is, uh, is an image that comes from the book of Numbers. When uh, Israel was coming from Egypt and they were going to the promised land, en route to Jericho, they passed through the land of Moab. And the king of Moab, who's Balak, was very terrified of this large army passing through his, his land. And so he calls on this false prophet named Balaam to curse Israel for him. And in asking him to curse, uh, to curse Israel, Balaam says, well, no, I, I can't do that. But let me give you a suggestion. Why don't you get your women, the Moabite women, to entice the Israelite men into sexual immorality, and then they'll fall into idolatry. And that'll be a way that you can come at them kind of sideways. 
catch them unawares. Instead of me cursing them, or instead of you confronting them head-on in battle when they know where the opposition comes from, come at them sideways. They can just sort of slide slowly away from God that way. That's what the teaching of Balaam represents. It represents um, a seductive path that slowly slips away from God. And the Nicolaitans similarly probably were people were, were, was a, a, a teaching that was prominent amongst some of these churches. It's mentioned in another letter as well. Um, that was probably a very libertarian understanding of the gospel. That, well, grace is going to cover everything, so it's okay. It's not really a big deal. Just loosen up a little bit. Jesus will cover you with grace. And these two sort of ideas converge in this situation where these Christians are facing great pressure. And they were, as a result, as a consequence of this, were justifying immorality, it seems like, and perhaps also justifying their membership in, in various pagan societies in Pergamum, where if you were a member of a certain kinds of pagan societies that would participate in various rituals, including eating um, food that had been sacrificed to idols, you could gain status in the culture and society. It was a way of networking with people. It was a way of promoting yourself. So there were lots of economic and social advantages to being a part of these pagan societies. And probably that's one of the things that these believers were tempted to. Now, we don't have that issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. But what is it that you really, really want in life? And what is it that you deeply believe in your heart of hearts is the one thing that can get that for you? What is it that you believe has the power to give you life? Or what is it that you believe has the power to protect you from whatever it is that you fear? Of course, as Christians, we'll all sort of say, well, it's got to be Jesus, right? But set aside the rhetoric for a moment. In your heart of hearts, what is it you really want out of life? And what is it that you deeply believe that will get it for me? If it's anything other than Jesus, if it's anything other than Jesus, you're in deep danger of the teaching of Balaam. Of the way of the Nicolaitans. You may say, well, why is this a big issue? I mean, the Christians in Pergamum, they are, at least they're being faithful to Jesus. They're not openly worshiping Caesar as God. Um, what's the big deal? Why is, this such a, uh, why is he making such a big deal about this? Jesus is making a big deal about this because, as I mentioned earlier, the martyrdom of Antipas, the death of Antipas, was probably a harbinger. It was a signal of things that were going to get worse. It's going to get more difficult for them. And if they were starting to compromise now because it was difficult, if they were tending towards syncretism now, they're not going to stand when it gets harder. If you don't stand when it's, this, when it's like this, what's going to happen when it's more difficult? You're going to jump ship entirely. You're going to become so absorbed into the culture around you that when Jesus comes back, he won't even recognize you. And there's a scary thought of Jesus saying to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Who are you? Jesus takes this seriously because he's concerned they're not going to be able to stand in the opposition that comes. He's deeply concerned because any kind of accommodation to the cultural ideologies which prevail, any kind of compromise means that Christ is on the outside. And if Christ isn't central, if Christ is not the central image that dominates your whole identity and your whole set of actions and ways in which you orient yourself in the world, if Christ is not the central image, Christ with the drawn sword, then that means you are fundamentally out of alignment with reality. Because at the heart of reality, 
At the center of reality is a throne with someone sitting on it, the one who has the drawn sword. And if he's not at the center of your reality, then you're living in a false reality. And if you're living in a false reality, you're living by the lights of an ideology that is fundamentally setting you on a course to death. So Jesus gets up in your face and he says, I am the center. That's just objectively true. Get in line with what is true because I don't want you to die. I'm the only one who can sustain your center. I'm the one who holds the sword. Forsake all others because I love you. I don't want you to die. It's a profound warning. But there may be a few of us here this morning that feel like, okay, well, none of this applies to me because I've been really faithful like in absolutely every aspect of my life. Well, maybe verse 16 is for you. Therefore, repent, Jesus says. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You notice the change of pronouns here? He's speaking in the second person. You repent, therefore you repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. Who's the them? Well, the them is those who have been bought into the teaching of, of Balaam, who, are, who have been absorbed into the Nicolaitans. They're the ones who are tempted to compromise, who are syncretizing. The ones he's addressing in verse 16 are not those ones. They're the ones who've been faithful. They're not, not the, whole, the whole church wasn't compromising. But he says, you repent. If not, I'll come against them, your brothers, your sisters in the church. Now, that's a very interesting thing to say, isn't it? I think this is really profound for us, especially in the West, who, view, who regard our faith of Jesus as a very individualistic thing. So long as me and Jesus are fine, that's great. Everyone else can sort of sort their own thing out with Jesus, but it's just me and him. If we're okay, then it's okay. Jesus says, hang on a second. You're a part of something much bigger than just yourself. You are beholden to one another. You are responsible to one another. Collectively, as a body, as a church, you hold the lamp in this community. Collectively, as a body, as a church, you bear my name. All of you are responsible to exhort, challenge, encourage, and uphold one another. If you, that if your brother is sliding, if your sister is sliding into compromising, that you would seek them out. As James says in James chapter 5, whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death. That's a really hard thing to do. It's really hard to proclaim truth to those we love. And we need to do that with great care. As Jesus says elsewhere, um, you know, remove the log from your own eye before you pick out someone else's speck. But we're also responsible to one another. This is much bigger than just you, yourself, and Jesus. This is much bigger than just your experience in Edinburgh. We're involved in a cosmic battle of life and death, and we're in this together. And Jesus, who holds the sword, is leading the way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What are the consequences of hearing or not hearing? Well, on the one hand, there's this profound warning that if you do not repent, Jesus says, I will come against you with my sword and make war against you. That's a really sobering thought, isn't it? We usually look at the coming of Jesus as a wonderful thing. But what if the coming of Jesus is the most terrifying thought ever? What if he comes against you with a sword? Because you've become so compromised, you've so compromised your faith that you are not recognizably Christian in any sense. And when he comes and brings judgment, 
you're on the wrong side of the line. Because Jesus, with his two-edged sword, cuts truth from chaff. And any who are caught straddling two allegiances are cut down the middle. Christ doesn't share his throne with anybody. But there's a great comfort for us as well. The letter ends with a promise. In verse 17, To the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Two images offered, two promises given, two metaphors, hidden manna and a white stone. We don't know exactly what Jesus is referring to here, but manna, of course, is an image that comes from the Old Testament when God provided for his people in in the desert, in the wilderness, with bread from heaven, with manna from heaven. And so the essence of this image is that God would provide the spiritual sustenance um, for you that comes from having a, a eternal fellowship with Jesus, who is, the, who is the bread of life. That God would provide all of your needs in eternity. That's the promise here. And the white stone is probably in some, some sense a token of the relationship that you have with the Father because of Jesus. And in that relationship, you find a secure, safe identity. It's got your new name written on it. This is who you are. And this is a token of my relationship with you, God says. You see, Jesus knows what we really need. He knows what we're really seeking. What is it that, we, that you are seeking when you're tempted to compromise for gain? When you're tempted to collude with world system, with world ideologies, with world ways of being and doing, what is it that you're really tempted to, what is it you're grasping for or are fearful of? Well, it's very simple, really. At root, all of us, the deepest longings of the human heart are for relationship, for security, and for significance. We want to be in meaningful relationships. We want to know that our lives count for something. We want to be safe. We want to be secure. That's what drives pretty much everything that we do. And Jesus knows that. And so what he's saying in these two images of a a hidden manna and the stone is he's saying, if you will trust me, if you'll lean your full weight on me and have me at the center of everything, I'll give you what you're really searching for. I'll sustain you. You'll have security in me. And you'll have a relationship for which you were made. So two images to refurbish and transform our imaginations. I know where you dwell, where Satan has his throne, but I'm the one who holds the sword. Let him who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who knows what we need, a God who knows where we are, a God who knows the challenges that we face. And you are gracious with us, patient with us, merciful with us. Father, help us to hear, help us to lean heavily into you, and give us wisdom to know how to orient our lives so around Jesus that we would be the lamp in this dark city where Satan has his throne. In the confidence and the anticipation of your return, we pray. Amen.